Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Hebrews. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. And it's really part two of the exhortation we began in our last recording, the exhortation to press on to maturity and not fall away. So contextually, we're really still part of that same uh, exhortation. We're just in a second section of it that kind of takes the exhortation in a new direction. And so in the previous section, the first part of this exhortation, he gave a very stern warning. He reminded the readers that they really have not uh, lived up to the fullness of their faith and, and gone on to maturity, that they're still immature, they still need baby food. Uh, he's warned them about the danger of falling away with a very serious warning. And now, here in part two, he's going to really reassure them of what he knows about them and call them to continue to be faithful. So this is what he says, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, even though we're speaking this way. Now, notice the flow of this in context. He's just issued a very sober, stern warning about falling away. He's given the graphic illustration of ground that ends up being burned because it produced nothing but worthless thorns and thistles. And he stated that, however, in a very generic sort of way. In the case of those who, right, distinguishing the readers and himself from those who do those kinds of things. So now, he comes back around after giving that warning and says, but we don't think that's you. We're actually confident that you're going to walk in the way of salvation. And so the warning is real and it's serious and sobering, but the author of Hebrews doesn't think the original readers have completely fallen away yet. He's persuaded they'll actually pursue things having to do with salvation and not with the curse that he just described in verses 7 and 8. And notice also in verse 9 that he calls them beloved. But beloved, we're convinced of better things for, for you, right? That this is a warm relational term. It, it emphasizes his genuine care and love for them. And so from the stern warning about those who you know, potentially fall away to now we move to a warm affirmation that he believes the best in them. Why does he believe the best in them? Well, the reason is because they've, they've shown the evidence of faith. They've borne good fruit. And so notice verse 10, he says, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown towards his name by having served and still serving the saints. And so the author's optimism is based on their previous Christian service, their previous love towards God, their previous ministry to Christians, and even their present ministry to fellow Christians, right? Like having served and still serving the saints. It's present. They're still doing that. And so his optimism is based on their Christian activity. And just one little technical note, when he says, having served and still serving the saints— um, depending on the translation you're looking at, for example, if you're looking at the NIV, it'll say his people, but literally it's saints. And it means God's holy people. The word saint is from the root word, the same root word as holy and holiness. And it's those set apart as belonging to God. So it is a belonging term. And that's why some translations will 
will translate it as his people, but it's God's holy people, those set apart for him. So, even though the author calls them out in chapter 6, 1 through 3, for their immature understanding of the faith, and even though he gave them a stern warning of what happens to people who fall away, he still sees the evidence of the genuineness of their faith in their service to God by serving God's people. And he wants each individual in the congregation that he's writing to, he wants them to pursue that with faithfulness. And so look at verse 11. He says, and we desire that each one of you, not just you all as a group, but each one of you demonstrate the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and endurance inherit the promises. The word demonstrate at the beginning of verse 11, we desire that each one of you demonstrate the same diligence. That word demonstrate there is the same word translated shown in verse 10, that uh, you have shown your love towards God's name by the way you've served his people and the work you've done, right? So demonstrate and shown, same word, it ties the uh, the two verses together. And he wants each individual to show this. And to show this, notice, with diligence, that is with eagerness, with zealousness. And so you all have shown this. Now each one of you work hard to demonstrate, to show this same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Just to clarify, the word realize is not there. In this translation, they've added it. It literally is just show this same diligence unto the full assurance of hope. Show this same diligence toward uh, the full assurance of hope. That is, no one is like realizing anything. Like, whoa, I'm realizing something. No one's realizing anything. Their continued love towards God, their continued service towards God's people, as described in verse 10, will lead to full assurance of hope. And the idea of full assurance of hope here in context is that they have complete assurance of their commitment to Jesus. Remember, in the previous paragraph, he offered a very stern warning. Then he began by assuring them of his confidence in them and reminded them of their proven track record. So now what he's saying is, we want this for each one of you. We want each one of you to be diligent about your faith and your faithfulness because it's that diligence and that continued faithfulness that will actually give you full assurance of the hope you have full assurance that God will fulfill his promises to you in Christ. And then he goes on in verse 12 and actually clarifies what he means. Like notice verse 12 begins with sluggish, like so that you will not be sluggish. And that word sluggish stands in contrast to diligence in verse 11. Don't be sluggish in your loyalty to Jesus. Don't just coast. Don't just stop. Don't just camp out. Like, you know, I'm just content with where I'm at in my faith in Jesus. No, don't be sluggish. Be diligent because that diligence is what will actually lead to this full assurance of hope. In fact, he says, he ends verse 12 by saying, but be imitators of those. Like, follow the example of those who through faith and endurance inherit the promises. And so that's his call. 
And so let's just summarize what he said in verses 10 through 12. He said this, As a whole, they have a proven track record of love towards God and service to God's people. And he wants each individual within the congregation to show that same commitment with diligence. This will lead them to a full assurance that they really do belong to the Messiah and they will receive the promises they hope for in the Messiah. Then, in verses 13 through 20, he goes on to show the reliability of God's promises and the reliability of the hope that they have as followers of Jesus. God is trustworthy. His promises are sure. And so, the hope they have is sure. In fact, it can actually serve as an anchor to their soul if they continue to live faithfully to Jesus. And so, he starts out this section by reassuring them of God's promises by demonstrating this with an example of someone whose life story shows how trustworthy God's promises are. And that example is Abraham. He starts with the example of Abraham. Why an example? Well, because he just said to them, be imitators of those who through faith and endurance inherit the promises. And why Abraham? Well, because Abraham is not just any example. He is the very fountainhead of God's promises. He's one of the paramount examples of faith and endurance. And so here's an example for you to follow. Here's somebody for you to imitate, imitate Abraham. And so he says in verse 13, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear an oath by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply you. This promise that the author of Hebrews is quoting comes from Genesis 22, verses 16 and 17. Abraham had just proven his trust in God by following the the instructions to take Isaac up on the mountain and offer him there. After that tremendous affirmation of Abraham's faith, God reciprocated by once again restating the promise that he's going to Through Isaac, he's going to give him many descendants, and he's ultimately going to fulfill his great promise through him. And so God restated that promise and did so with an oath, right? Like he swore with an oath, indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly mulch you. He swore by himself. Now, it's helpful for us, particularly to remember, the original readers would have remembered this very easily because they were Jews, Hebrews, after all. But us, maybe not so much. It's important for us to remember who Abraham is in the context of the biblical story, that Abraham shows up early on in the biblical story, and he's the one through whom God is going to reverse the curse of the fall. He's the one through whom he's going to bring his promise into the world. It is through Abraham's seed that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so the story of the Bible is really the story of how God is going to fulfill the promise to Abraham. And Jesus, according to Galatians chapter 3, is the culmination of that story that the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abraham is the Messiah himself, Jesus. And so Abraham is not just some random example from the Bible. He is the very fountainhead of God's promises. And that's why he's so central to the story. And so he brings up Abraham here. He reminds us of how God swore by himself to fulfill his promise through Isaac to Abraham. 
And then, in keeping with his point here in the context of Hebrews chapter 6, he says in verse 15, And so, having patiently waited, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. And so, to keep the context in mind, Abraham is an example of those who, through faith and endurance, inherited the promises. The kind of example they're supposed to imitate. Now, what promise did Abraham receive during his lifetime? Well, notice here in verse 15, it's singular. He obtained the promise, not promises. Most of what was promised to Abraham didn't come didn't come until later after Abraham had died. That's why Hebrews 11.39 can say about Abraham that Abraham and the others mentioned there in Hebrews 11 died not having received the promises. But Abraham did receive one specific promise during his lifetime. And that promise was an heir, an heir through Sarah, his son Isaac. And that's what's being dealt with specifically in this context. And that's the reaffirmation given in Genesis 22 that was just quoted here in verses 13 and 14. And so that's the promise he had in mind. Abraham waited patiently and he obtained the promise of an heir, Isaac, his son. And in that passage from Genesis 22 just quoted, God emphasized his promise to Abraham with an oath. So the author of Hebrews goes on to talk about the power of an oath. Verse 16, For people swear an oath by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath serving as confirmation is an end of every dispute. So that verse simply illustrates the power or describes the power of an oath. People swear an oath by someone greater, and an oath Actually, when given as a confirmation, that ends the dispute. Okay, you've promised, you've sworn an oath, it's guaranteed. That's why God used an oath with his promise to Abraham, verse 17. In the same way, God, desiring even more to demonstrate to the heirs of the promise the fact that his purpose is unchangeable, confirmed it with an oath. So the promise to Abraham wasn't just for his benefit. It was the beginning of God's promise to reverse the curse and restore all things, as I said a moment ago. Thus, that promise with an oath encourages the heirs of the promise. That is, all those who receive the blessing of Abraham, which is now located in Christ. And so we all are heirs of the promised Abraham. And God, desiring to demonstrate how certain his purpose and his promise was, he confirmed it with an oath. And what's the result of God adding an oath to his promise? Well, verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to hold firmly to the hope set before us. So, verse 18 gives the result. So that indicates result. And what's the result? Well, the result is that God's promise and God's oath gives those in Christ, the heirs of the promise, great confidence in our hope of inheriting God's promise. We can, we can hold firmly to the hope. We can have strong encouragement because, because of God's promise and God's oath. That's the two unchangeable things here when he says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we can have strong encouragement. The two unchangeable things are God's promise and God's oath. And since God can't lie, 
We can trust him and his promise. We can hold firmly to it. We can count on it. And so the hope that we have in Christ is solid. It's trustworthy. It's sure that when we set our hope on God in Christ, it's like an anchor for the soul is what the author of Hebrews goes on to say. Look at verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. That's how certain it is. It's it in a world of chaos and confusion, we can have complete confidence in the hope of God's promises given in Christ because God swore it with an oath and God can't lie. And so his promise and his oath make it certain. And thus it's an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and reliable, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And with that, we come full circle, back to where he left off in the last explanation section. Jesus is a high priest, and he's a high priest specifically in the order of Melchizedek. And he'll take that up full force in the next paragraph. But here, he offers, really, a, another appeal. This is part two of his exhortation to press on to be faithful. Part one was in 5.11 through 6.8, and it issued a stern warning about the danger of falling away. Part two here really softens that and calls them to be diligent in loving God and serving people so they can enjoy the full assurance of inheriting God's promises that they hope for in Christ. And those promises are certain. Those promises are trustworthy. They're an anchor for the soul. Notice they're sure and reliable. They actually enter within the veil. And he'll go on to talk more about that in later chapters, but he's using the, the picture of the tabernacle, which he says is actually a copy of the true tabernacle in heaven. And Jesus has entered into heaven uh, as a forerunner for us. And so we're entering behind the veil into the very holy of holies, to the very presence of God. That's where our hope and our certainty lie. We've, we're anchored there with God himself in his presence, God who cannot lie, God who has promised, God who has given an oath for us. And so these promises are sure, and thus the author here really is calling them and us to be diligent in faithfulness. Um, this means loyalty, not perfection. He doesn't mean perfection. He means loyalty. Uh, he means to continue with God. He means being diligent to live for God and live with God. Abraham wasn't perfect, and that's the example he's given, right? But Abraham did stick with God and kept coming back to God. And that's the point. Be diligent in faithfulness, and that'll give you full assurance that you'll inherit God's promises. And those promises are sure and trustworthy and reliable. All right, thanks for tuning in to this session of the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So if you're one of those who make this ministry possible, thanks a ton from the bottom of my heart. And if you've been impacted by this ministry and want to join the team of supporters, you can do so at the link down in the notes below, or you can go on over to listenerscommentary.com, click the Give button, and you can set up a one-time or a recurring monthly donation right there. All donations are received in partnership with World Family Mission, a registered nonprofit organization. So thanks a ton for your support.